0: Hi everyone, I'm Mary Morton and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground. We recorded the following conversation at Women & Children First, an independent feminist bookstore in Chicago's Andersonville community. Women & Children First is one of our city's treasures and is one of the largest feminist bookstores in the country. The bookstore recently celebrated its 40th anniversary with a fabulous block party and we encourage you to support this bookstore and all independent bookstores. This conversation took place on a Friday evening, and I will add that on just about every Friday evening, you will find a group gathered to listen to an author at the weekly book reading. So many interesting and fascinating authors make this bookstore a priority stop on their tour, whether it's Hillary Clinton, Samantha Irby, or in this case, Pamela Newkirk. Pamela Newkirk is the author of Diversity, Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion-Dollar Business. Pamela Newkirk has devoted a considerable portion of her life to journalism and higher education, both fields in which people of color are radically underrepresented. In three of four newsrooms, she was the only African-American news reporter. She would later become one of two people of color on New York University's tenure-track journalism faculty, and for a time was one of the few tenured African-American female professors on the entire faculty of the university's Faculty of Arts and Science. During more than three decades of her professional life, diversity has been a national preoccupation. Yet despite decades of hand-wringing, costly initiatives, and uncomfortable conversations, progress in most elite American institutions has been negligible. While racial ethnic minorities make up roughly 38.8% of the national population, they comprise just 17% of full-time university professors, which includes faculty at historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. As Paula Giddings, the Woodson Professor Emerita at Smith College states, with revealing statistics, a compelling narrative, and conclusions about our liberal institutions that will shock, but perhaps not surprise, Pamela Newkirk's Diversity, Inc. is a must read for our times. And we absolutely concur. Here's Pamela Newkirk on Diversity, Inc. Tonight, we're in lovely Andersonville at Women and Children First, so we're very excited and very excited to have this opportunity to talk with Pamela Newkirk. Um, We, as you heard, do a lot of work through Morton Group in this realm, and so I'm excited to talk to you about all kinds of things, some of them which we probably won't get to in the next hour. Um, But we're going to have Pamela, she's going to read a small section from the book, and then we are going to have a conversation and then of course we'll open it up for some questions and answers and we'll go about an hour okay so uh, what section would you like to start with Pamela? Uh,
1: I usually don't read but I'll, okay. I'll, I'll read a little. Okay. I'd rather right. have a conversation yes. because okay. you know you okay. can read <laughs> you guys can read it but um, I'll just read a little Okay. Uh, so I've devoted a considerable portion of my life in journalism and higher education both fields in which people of color are radically underrepresented. In three of four newsrooms, I was the only African-American news reporter and I would later become one of two people of color in New York University's tenure-track journalism faculty and for a time was one of the few tenured African-American female professors in the entire faculty of the university's Faculty of Arts and Science. During more than three decades of my professional life, diversity has been a national preoccupation. Yet, despite decades of hand-wringing, costly initiatives, and uncomfortable conversations, progress in most elite American institutions has been negligible. While racial ethnic minorities make up roughly 40% of the national population, they comprise just 17% of full-time university professors, which includes faculty at historically black colleges and universities. Put another way, non-Hispanic whites who comprise roughly 61 percent of the population hold 82 percent of full-time professorships. Hispanics and blacks who together encompass roughly 30 percent of the population are just three percent and four percent respectively of full-time professors. Their numbers have barely budged over the past few decades. Since 1968 diversity of course has been expanded to encompass other racial and ethnic minorities along with women, people with physical and mental disabilities, LGBTQI individuals, and other marginalized populations. However, given the issues unique to each distinct group and the ways in which the plight of racial minorities in general, and African Americans in particular, have been overshadowed by other categories within this overtaxed term, this book specifically addresses the progress the nation has made toward racial diversity. I explore diversity across numerous fields, but pay sustained attention to three in particular, academia, Hollywood, and corporate America, each of which has publicly and privately grappled with the issue over the past five decades. They are among the fields Whose leaders have in recent years renewed their commitment to diversity, collectively pledging billions of dollars to commission studies, set up training sessions, and hire consultants and czars to oversee diversity programs. These efforts have, among other things, shored up a multi billion dollar industry, expanding opportunities for an ever growing number of law firms, consultants, and senior level executives. It's impossible to understand diversity without exploring the big business of it, the tension between the rhetoric and expenditures, and the chronically disappointing results. The plodding pace of change makes clear the need to reframe the diversity conversation of recent years from a rosy we are the world ideal to one fired by a mission to combat systemic racial injustice and pervasive delusion about where we stand allies and advocates of diversity, I'm cutting through a lot, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, including those who are beneficiaries of the burgeoning industry it has spawned must also change course lest they become complicit with those who consciously or unconsciously work to sustain the status quo. In their work, they might ask whether they unwittingly serve as smoke screens rather than true agents of change. How might they enable evasion and resistance by the institutions they serve. At what point does it become apparent that institutions they associate with are less committed to diversity than their rhetoric, commission task forces, studies, and appointed diversity officers suggest? Diversity Inc. inspires indelicate questions and sober reflection and In an increasingly multiracial nation who will set the course for the nation's identity and destiny? In a nation that has, as a result of political and numerical dominance, largely been defined by whiteness, what would a truly diverse society mean culturally, politically, spiritually, economically, and psychologically for white Americans? What would it mean for America?
0: Great. Thank you so much. So. That is a wonderful um, starting point for our conversation. All of you this is not your first book, it's your fifth book, and all of your books have had some thread of race running through them and, and why is that?
1: Well, most of my research or most of my work concerns itself with depictions of African Americans and other marginalized groups because I believe that many people see Film portrayals or portrayals in literature is just, you know, no big deal, but I think you can draw a straight line from the cycle of demeaning depictions of African Americans in particular to what happened to Trayvon Martin, what happened to, you know, I could go on Mm -hmm. and on, Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. I just think that uh, these depictions have created a boogeyman um, where people of color, particularly African Americans and other dark-skinned people, have been so demonized that many white Americans and even some people of color believe the fiction of black life more than they believe the reality of it. So I, I have invested a lot of um, my time as both a journalist and a scholar to depicting more multi-dimensional portraits of people that Give you a better sense of who they are and of their humanity that I think is devoid in so many of these uh, depictions. Yeah,
0: this book is um, just full of extraordinary information, in particular statistics. I mean, it's so well researched. Um, It is it's certainly a book that we will start to use in some of our work um, because you've done an extraordinary job in just bringing forward information that I think people. aren't aware of. And the numbers do matter. Um, We can see it, but the numbers do matter. And why was that important to you?
1: Well, I think um, many people in this country look at the progress that has been made on race as if it's a linear forward uh, movement Mm -hmm. and as if it doesn't mean that, you know, we go forward and we go back and we go forward. But people focus on the progress, but they don't look at how um, much of that progress gets erased because there's often a backlash to progress. So you know, with um after emancipation, we had reconstruction, and you had black governors and senators and members of Congress. And then you had the backlash, you had the Ku Klux Klan, you had black codes, which stayed with us for like 100 mm-hmm. years, right? And then we had the civil rights movement, and we made tremendous progress. We had begun to close the racial gap in education, and poverty rates. I mean, really, really like amazing progress. And then we had the backlash in the 1980s that erased many of the gains that were made. Um, Our schools are pretty much as segregated as they were in the 1950s before Brown v. Board of Education. But what we do in this country or what we tend to do is we focus so much attention on the symbolic progress that we don't look at what's actually happening. After that progress has been made, and so if you look at the numbers, right, the gains are not nearly as dramatic as many Americans think, and you know it didn't help that we had this amazing president, I was Barack Obama, say, exactly, and that gave people that gave people a right. even you know a even more false sense exactly. of right. of how how far we've come and in that we closing racial the. Right, we were just post-race, like, two years ago.
0: Yeah, Okay. So everyone. <laughs> no didn't one know that. even says that post, anymore. Yes, right,
1: right. Right? But everyone said it. Like, if you Google post-race, like, or if you go on LexisNexis, as I do to do my research, like, the New York Times alone must have said it thousands of times, post-race, 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 you know. And now no one says it anymore. It's like we forgot that we had been post-race, but we weren't then, and we never have been. Right. And so I just think... Um, it was really important for me to look at the numbers and not the mythology around the progress that's been made. Yeah.
0: And when we think about the election of Barack Obama, you have those numbers. And I think I didn't realize I worked on the campaign that um, he solidly carried certainly every, you know, when he ran in 2008 and 2012, he gained more votes in people of color communities but I think people will be surprised to know where he topped out in white communities. Precisely. I, yeah, I think it was maybe not even fifty
1: percent. It was about forty. Yeah, and yeah. and it was even less the, the second time. time. Exactly. Yeah, the right. second time it dropped. Exactly. Right. right. So you know, um, African Americans overperformed, Latinos overperformed, Asians overperformed, young whites overperformed. You had this, you know, you had an unusual right. outpouring, but white America, he lost white. America both times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that it wasn't impressive, the percentage of whites who did vote for him, but they were not in the majority. Exactly. Right. Right.
0: And, and I don't think anyone really understands that because that was not the sentiment that was not what was being expressed
1: precisely at the time.
0: So you picked three areas. You picked academia, you picked um, corporate America and uh, journalism. And why did you pick those films? Film, I, I picked Film. Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Hollywood. And because why did my you... first
1: book was about journalism. So what, I, yes. I I, I thought mm-hmm. that I pretty much had told that story and it hadn't changed that okay. much in the twenty years since really? that first book was published.
0: <laughs> so it's wow. like,
1: read my first book and it's pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> That's really unbelievable and sad yeah. in many ways. Yeah. In Absolutely. fact,
1: um African Americans have lost ground since right. my first book on on race in the media. So um so yeah I looked at I looked at Hollywood corporate America and academia because first of all they were such different realms of mm-hmm. American life mm-hmm. and you would think that you'd find like vastly different things happening right. Right. and in some cases they were but what I discovered you know the Hollywood because of the way it kind of helps us imagine how people are
0: you mean in terms of people assuming that in Hollywood people are more progressive?
1: Well, yeah, and the fact that they are image makers, and so mm-hmm. the way it has depicted black people for more than a hundred years is the way most people in this country and throughout the world think they know black people. Right. So I thought Hollywood was really important, um, corporate America, obviously, and. Um, academia, because the same thing, what we know about people, you know, people like to think of racial bias as something that swells up from the ground up. But many of the ideas around race were codified in the academy, right? It was at Harvard, Princeton, Yale, where anthropology and all Mm -hmm. of these fields Mm -hmm. were telling us what people still think they know about people who people are based on this hierarchy of race. I even remember as a kid, that's what we learned in science. You know, mm-hmm. you had, you had Africans and you kept moving up. And they, so there was this hierarchy, right. A, a, around intelligence mm-hmm. and ability. And, um, so all of these fields have a lot to say about the experiences of people based on their race. Mm-hmm. And, um, Another thing about those three fields is that um, President Johnson's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, which was commissioned after the uprisings in urban areas in the 1960s, mm-hmm. um, it it called on all of these fields to open up. These were fields that were pretty much closed to blacks and to mm-hmm. other racial minorities. Um, and so I wanted to look 50 years later how much progress had been made in those fields. And so
0: when you look at academia, let's just take them one by one, what did you find? Because again, this is a place where, as you said, some of these ideas were codified.
1: Right, well the numbers have not changed much um, in decades. Um, African-Americans, as I said, like 4% of um, full professors Mm -hmm. in, in the academy and and if you look even more closely, many of them are at um, two-year colleges and, you know, not in the most elite mm-hmm, <laughs> schools. Mm-hmm. So in many schools, African-Americans are like 2%. Uh, and, and that 4% includes black professors at historically black colleges and universities. Which
0: is really, really shocking. Right. So,
1: so when you look at, when you drill down on the numbers, it. Tells it, a story. It tells a story. The numbers yeah. are illuminating in their own right. And yeah. I just think it dispels the mythology that we have around this, like, you know, incredible progress. Yes, we had begun to make that progress. And then it stalled. And in, and now, in many cases, it's in retreat diversity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: So when you look at entertainment, when you look at Hollywood, there are a number of examples. Um, as I was saying right before we started, I... Consider myself who someone who stays, you know, sort of up on what's happening. I did not know about the deal that Issa Rae had made with, um, is it, is it. Uh, I
1: don't want to say it's Paramount or Universal. It's one, one of, of, of those two. Them. Right. Mm-hmm. She's just made this
0: incredible deal um, to have her own production company mm-hmm. Which is incredible. She is the um, author of Awkward Black Girls. And um, her show Insecure, of course, has been on. I think it's on its third season maybe mm-hmm. on HBO. But that's that's extraordinary, Anna. Right. DuVernay has... Um, Ava right. DuVernay has... Ray uh, mm-hmm. a, 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 Right. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things are happening. Right. It seems as though there has But been- I mean,
1: we're talking about a... you know, it, the, the, the most surprising thing to me about doing the research on the Hollywood section is just how acutely underrepresented people of color are and not just in front of the camera where they're more visible yes. but behind the yes. camera where
0: well, the decisions are being
1: made where about the who's deci- going to be. On front. Exactly. Right. It's like something like 90% of directors, 90 plus percent of directors, um screenwriters, uh producers, like all of the influential roles mm-hmm. are still like overwhelmingly held by white men for the most part even white women are not really represented right. in, in in those fields and then when you look at who greenlights films it's like 95 percent mm-hmm. you know right. so yeah so it's um you know in 20 i think it was 2015 when for the second year in a row um none of the um uh, nominees for Oscars were yes. people of color, right. right? Right. So it was the second year in a row. But then, when you look at those numbers it it helps you, it helps explain everything. It's not just who's making the films and who they imagine the audience to be, but who was voting on uh, uh, for the the films. I Decision mean, that makers. was also ninety mm-hmm. something percent right. white. So we like to think of ourselves as a diverse society, but when you look at who who has the who still has the influence, um, people of color have not really cracked that ceiling.
0: And when you think about the Oscar situation and the whole hashtag Mm OscarSoWhite, which I I didn't realize how that started either, I think I thought you know, Jada Pinkett Smith had something to do with that for some reason.
1: <laughs> no, um, it was just a lawyer.
0: Yeah. Just a lawyer who decided to send out that tweet.
1: She did that one tweet and it just went viral. And, and next thing you know, it ex- right, right? she started a movement. It's incredible. Right. Um,
0: and that's how we see change happen though, right? right? Mm-hmm. What has
1: been your experience in terms
0: of where you have seen some, some movement? How's, how's that come about?
1: Well, in Pretty much all of the situations that I have found in my research, they were prompted by either some scandal... Uh, you know, someone used the N word and then they hire diversity are or mm-hmm, somewhere, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Prada does a line with blackface. Oh, they hire diversity are <laughs> and and Yeah, and they and hired they, Gates as one of those and folks. Then, and then they get oh. Ava DuVernay to become sort of like a spokeswoman for Prada. It's like so blackface to cover blackface. It's like this is what it's so usually Starbucks. They have the episode. They close their st- Doors and they bring in the the you know NAACP Legal Defense yes, Fund yes. Um, head and like so, but it becomes symbolic change for the most part. Like very rarely do you see uh, institutions really go beyond a public relations phase of the diversity movement.
0: And something that we often will say when we're doing workshops and people do want you to come in and do a, a one off, if you will, or they we we really insist on doing an assessment like we won't walk into an organization and just do a training. Right. We think it's really important that we take the temperature of what's happening so we can customize it. Um, but people really feel like, you know, we can check that off. We did that. We had a session. Right. Um, and the reality is the real work happens after the session. Precisely. It's not in those sessions, right? Right. How are you going to operationalize this? How are you going to center this in your organization right. moving forward? Right. And what we don't see, to your point, is organizations taking the next yeah, step.
1: They, they want to do what Cyrus Mary, who's one of the um, lawyers mm-hmm. who um, he was he was the lead counsel in the discrimination lawsuits against both Coca-Cola yes. and Texaco, both mm-hmm. landmark settlements. And he's, you know, everyone wants to do drive-by diversity. You yes. know, they, they yes. want to check the box. They Everyone wants to do climate surveys and they want to, you know, test the temperature, but they don't want to do the interventions.
0: Right. And, right. and a lot of that, um, that we find is really fear of losing power. Right. People are concerned they're going to have to share power that they're going to that it's going to upset the status quo. And we tell people we are trying to upset upset the status quo.
1: Right. And I guess I don't even go there because Mm -hmm. I did not put any of these institutional leaders on the couch. (laughs) And I'm not even qualified to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All I can look at is what they've done. Right. Look at the outcomes and and what they haven't done. That's right. 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 And that's the numbers. Can't argue with the numbers. Right.
0: So diversity, really, though, is is at least getting people in the door and creating this picture right um as you know more recently we've really started to talk about inclusion and
1: equity and where do you see that fitting in well i i treated them all as the same Mm -hmm. because i don't think you could you can have diversity without having inclusion and belonging exactly i mean it's not going to work it's not sustainable right right? Mm -hmm. so you like people have to feel a part of the place and Mm -hmm. you have to accept the whole person and not you know just their skin, and then, <laughs> and well, then nothing else. Right? Exactly. not their ideas, not their. Um, but that's what happens. But it happens. That's why people don't stay. That's why. That's people exactly don't stay. why people don't yeah, yeah. stay.
0: I work, you know, primarily we work with nonprofits and foundations, and mm-hmm. what we see in the foundation world is that foundations are still eighty percent or more run by white folks, and in particular right. white men. Mm-hmm. And when folks of color are coming into the foundations, right. they are not feeling welcome. Right. They're not feeling validated and they leave.
1: Until like recent years, uh, a a person of color, African-American, could not wear an Afro or have braids or have their natural hair. Isn't it absurd that California has had to pass legislation around
0: someone being able to wear their hair in a natural style? I mean, I know so many
1: people in journalism who like either lost their jobs or were suspended or demoted because of their natural hair. It's so it's just unbelievable so yeah so mm-hmm. we've made some progress in that regard right um i in fact i was on the i was telling my sister coming um from new york on the plane both of the flight attendants had natural hair i was like wow <laughs> I know. but the fact that that's even noteworthy exactly is you know it would be like being a white person and being required to perm your hair like into an afro to go to 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 hold a job exactly. to go to an interview to to just be accepted exactly you know exactly yeah.
0: and so um this idea around inclusion and then of course equity um what we find when we are doing work with organizations and they say we just we just couldn't find any folks of color oh well that's the what what they really meant was that we couldn't find anyone who was a person of color who also by the way didn't think exactly like we do
1: well and you hear oh it's just not a good fit
0: oh yes <laughs> culture fit (laughs) we do executive placements and when someone says that i said you do realize that that is a way that people of color are kept out of positions right by talking about the fact that there's no culture fit
1: not a good fit
0: right right all that coded language right that that is used um so when you think about corporate america let's let's talk about corporate america and then we're going to open it up shortly
1: for questions um what did you learn there that you wanted to raise? I guess the the most surprising thing to me in the book is that um, corporate America has made far greater strides than many of the fields that are considered more progressive, like Hollywood, like journalism, like higher ed, like fashion. like I mean, I can go on and mm-hmm. on. So mm-hmm. the fields that are considered the most progressive fields are the least diverse, and corporate America is the most for the most part diverse Uh, and it still has challenges, particularly Mm -hmm. at the upper echelons of it. Um, We still are in the, you know, handful of, you know, CEOs of color. Right, in Fortune 500 companies. Fortune 500, Fortune 100. In fact, we've gone in the reverse direction. I think the highest was five or six and now we're down to three, Um, but, but, in in terms of overall representation and management um, and across the board corporate America has made far greater strides and I think it has a lot to do um, both with many of the um the rules and regs of corporate America like anti-nepotism policies um you know just there there there's more scrutiny mm-hmm. on the the process, you know, Mm -hmm. you have EEOC law, you Mm -hmm. have a lot of things that regulated, but the more creative fields can get away with that whole culture thing. And Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. they're very closed and, you know, the, the more elite, the more exclusive the field, the less diversity you'll find. Museums are probably the least diverse field. Um, and, um, you know,
0: and there's been a whole um, sort of reworking of some of the
1: museums. I know MoMA oh, just, reopened, or just is opening, reopened. Just yes. reopened. Yes, just, a uh, just, just weeks two weeks ago. ago. Yeah, and it's amazing. And tell us what you know about well, that. Well, um, you know, they have. Artists like Betty Sarr, who's like I think like ninety 90s, years yes, old, yes, <laughs> and she's finally getting you know her, her due. due. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there are you know legions of of amazing artists who have just been excluded yeah. by virtue of their race,
0: as well as professionals in the museum field like and, Lonnie Bunch. Oh, just please. became the right. head of Smithsonian. Exactly, he spent time here in Chicago at the Chicago right. History Museum. Right, and he's sixty six. Oh, yeah, and he That's just became head of the the first African American. So
1: few. Mm-hmm. so few yeah. yeah
0: so there's a lot of work to do And so your overall impetus for writing
1: the book was to and and this title in particular well I was I was on um, Amtrak heading home from DC and I was reading uh, yet another article about yet another disappointing diversity report. It was one of the tech companies that mm-hmm. every year they're they're transparent now. They release their reports yes. and every year, you know, it's like Google, I think blacks in tech are like two percent, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Latinos like three, four percent. And every year it's about the same. <laughs> right. And every year it's right. disappointing. Yeah. And and it's like and then I read Google alone every year spends more than a hundred million dollars on diversity initiatives. And it's like okay. (laughs) To do what? To do what? what? (laughs) To keep it at two, three percent? (laughs) like. like. So I wanted to interrogate that tension Mm -hmm. between the expenditure and the hand wringing and, oh, this is so bad. And like, well, why is it so bad? Like, what are you doing with that money? And what, like, and so I wanted to look at um, just the what was happening, what they do, Mm -hmm. what all these companies are doing, and they're all pretty much doing the same thing. They're hiring czars and consultants. Mm -hmm. and (laughs) Yeah, and I have friends who who do it. And and the the needle doesn't move, for the most part, and there seems to not be much accountability, heads don't roll, and I just wondered, if you were spending billions of dollars on anything else, and have so little to show for it, would these people stay, like, would they be able to, like, are they still keep in place? their job Exactly, <laughs> so exactly. Like, so I just wanted to, like, look closely at what that looks like. Right. And, of course, we know that many of the strategies that are used don't work. Mm-hmm. And if you keep doing the same thing and expect different results, what no. does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> like, why aren't you changing course? right. Uh, but the good news is that there are strategies that have been shown to be effective, but they're not the ones that are usually used by most companies or most institutions. Give
0: yeah, us a couple of examples.
1: Well, um, I do a chapter on Coca-Cola and right. what happened after, yeah. you know, they settled mm-hmm. that $100 million uh, discrimination lawsuit. So there were very few African Americans in management. In That's fact, there was only one at the Uh, at a senior level Mm -hmm. out of like 25 in the company. And so anyway, so after the lawsuit, they had a task force that was charged with overseeing what they were going to do to deal with the problem they were having. What they found Mm -hmm. was like, among the things they found were that um, even when African Americans and whites had the same job title, blacks were paid much less. They found that, you know, there, there were problems with um, promotions mm-hmm. and, you know, they weren't getting the bonuses that like there were like extreme disparities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. glaring disparities mm-hmm. uh, along racial lines. So what they did is they hired someone who was charged with looking at the metrics across the country, anything that concerned an employee, um, whether it's like who were the candidates for a position. Like what did the candidate pool look like? Who was offered a job? Who wasn't offered a job? What, what was the salary scale along racial lines? So what they were able to do over time is to detect patterns of bias mm-hmm. and to disrupt those patterns. And over five years, they made like just staggering uh, progress in kind of leveling leveling the field. But it took a lot of, not just intention, but you couldn't, like, have progress and say, we're done, stick right. a flag, yay, right. exactly. <laughs> we're post-race. <laughs> exactly, right. You know, it, it. like, they had to be keep vigilant. They had to keep and, at it. And you right. have to continue to That's be vigilant. Right. right. And so that was one model. Uh, another model uh, that some institutions are now trying to employ is the Rooney Rule, which was adopted by the NFL after um, – Johnny Cochran and, and Cyrus Mary did a report showing that while the the NFL the players were 70% black um, they held I forgot what the percentage was but a very mm-hmm. small percentage of mm-hmm. front office jobs mm-hmm. and um, head coaches weren't African American and, and so the Rooney rule required that the at least the candidate pool be diverse you know for every front office and um, coaching job and over time that increased the number of black latin and latino uh, coaches in the nfl so it's something that some institutions have talked about but you can't just do it you have to like really stay on it and i think that's what we
0: see i can count on one hand the number of client partners we have who will do more than the initial workshop right um because they're checking a box they're checking a box in Mm -hmm. some cases and not understanding even though we say it repeatedly that this is going to be ongoing right um this is a journey right. this, is, this is a process and there is no end destination right and so you must to your point the coca-cola i think is a great example yeah they have to, they really um invested time oh and a dollars lot of time yeah and resources right so that they could do something different to disrupt what had been the status quo it,
1: exactly and they continue to monitor those right. numbers
0: exactly so that's always a part of what we say people should do right it's Really, whether or not organizations will do it. What
1: a lot of institutions do is they farm diversity out. Yes. They think you're going to fix it. Yes, that's right. You know, or the diversity is going to fix it. Right. As if you can make this kind of change without buy in from the leadership on down. It has to be incentivized, it has to be something that people know is real in that institution or it's just not gonna happen. Right,
0: It has to be a commitment, and so when we go in and even do a workshop, we ask to be introduced by someone from the executive team. Precisely. We don't want people just to think we just showed up this morning to do a session and no one wanted us to come in. You know, we have an assessment we're gonna review with you. I know in many
1: institutions they don't even do the training for the executives it's for the it's for the underlings oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Like, yes, they need this yes. and we have
0: to do some talking <laughs> right. to make sure that people understand you need to know what your staff will be experiencing <laughs> you must have a session even if we have to do it for you alone but
1: it just shows there's Absolutely. no buy-in there's no right. commitment it's just like yeah right let them go ahead and do that out. work that's yeah, exactly yeah. right yeah. and
0: and that those are the places where you will not see any real Systemic right.
1: change. Right. It which will is, just continue. Which is most places. Exactly.
0: <laughs> it's, it's true. And and to understand that it's going to take right. a while to undo social. And what I
1: didn't want to do is to vilify the people who do the diversity work. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. many of those people are change agents. Right. Like they went into it because they were motivated to do something that they thought was useful to society, exactly. to that like change. The That's game. Right. <laughs> and they can't because they're not the ones who can do this. They can guide, they can consult, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. but this has, to ha- this has to be something institutions are serious about. Um, one of the people who I interviewed was Lee Bollinger, who's the mm-hmm. president of Columbia University. Yes. And I interviewed him because he was named in two lawsuits while he was president of the University of Michigan, which became like landmark discrimination, right. reverse discrimination lawsuits. And it's something that he really, really committed himself to this fight. And even when he went to Columbia, he has continued to make this a priority before the unrest, before the campuses were like, you know, Mm -hmm. remember uh, 2015 was when a lot of these Mm -hmm. campuses Mm kind of went up. Exactly. And flames were not, because Columbia, he had been doing that work. laying the foundation. Yes. And it has shown a real passion and, and commitment. But, you know, like he says, this doesn't happen by accident. It's Sorry. only going to happen when you have that kind of intention and commitment to make Absolutely. it happen. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to pause there and see if any of you would like to ask any questions. Yes. I come from a, like a poor community, right? a very poor community. And what I
2: personally experienced is that even though there's a large portion of us that might be really intelligent, there's no path to higher education. And I think if we created more of a path for that, we'd have more, like, like I, I interview people all the time.
1: So, but the pool, the pool itself is small. And, and, um, so if we increase the pool, in other words, create more opportunity for people to get, from these poor communities to get educated, I think... I know, but see a so, so you're speaking of a pipeline, and it's something I address in the book because I think oftentimes uh, the pipeline is not why Hollywood doesn't have directors of color, it's not why dance companies are not diverse, it's not why, like we always like to think of the most um, elite stations. Think about it. Most of these fields are like that because people are self-replicating their social worlds you know we live in a very segregated society right. you hire who you know who your friends recommend that's you right. so it's 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 less i mean and it's not to say that more people need greater opportunities i mean that's a given that we need that for particularly for people of color but that is not why many of these fields lack diversity if you like in in my field of journalism if you only hired blacks and Latinos who graduated from Columbia University, which was the most elite journalism school in the United States, you could diversify newsrooms. So we like to think that it's the pipeline, which may have been true in the 1960s. But in most cases, the pipeline is not why many of these fields, especially the most elite fields, you're talking about small numbers of people. You're not talking about, you know, corporate America can hire hundreds, thousands of people Museums, like, you know, the Hollywood Studios, these are small places. They could diversify overnight if they wanted to. They are qualified people who could take those jobs and run with it overnight. True, if you have a pathway, meaning you know someone, you know, that's how many of these these businesses run. It's who you know. Relationships. It's It's relationships, so yeah. We're shut out of those relationships. So, yeah, I think our social sphere, social spheres are partly the reason why many of these workplaces are so segregated, because that's the way we live in this country. Our churches are segregated. Our schools are segregated. Our neighborhoods are segregated. It's like, so, of course, the, the workplaces are reflecting that. Which is a bigger problem. And, and it's not to say that we don't have problem with schools, that, you know, that uh, we don't need to make greater investments in our schools. But it's not the, it's not the only problem. And it's not even the, the biggest part of the problem.
2: So I was a uh, Cook County Public Defender for 27 years. I worked with um, legal aid for incarcerated mothers. I went into Dwight and did training. I had Dale, who was their executive director, do training. I also was trained to be, quote, a diversity trainer. You know, th- I don't think there was buy-in from the Cook County board or anything. So now what you said is going to make what I'm saying a little less controversial. Um, I mean, how do you get around bringing in a one-off person like to a corporation, and that person probably makes seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year, and they're lecturing the minimum-wage white workers about white privilege? How does then that not lead to resentment?
0: You lost. Me. Yeah, I'd tell us. Just to reframe your question again. Can
2: you um, also take into account economic and class differences, because you have someone who's very well paid coming in from the outside and they do a whole lecture about racism and white privilege, and the audience is largely white people making minimum wage. Mm-hmm.
1: Doesn't sound like a very smart thing to do. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, right. you know, we have to be real about resentment, right? I mean, there is, um, in fact, many of the studies, there, there was one very um, influential study out of Harvard that showed that most diversity training makes the problem worse. It causes white resentment. The way that many white men in particular read it is that they can't say anything, they have to walk on eggshells to survive the environment that is so so a lot of the ways in which we deal with the diversity question are just Badly done. I mean, it's just not like that didn't sound very smart.
0: <laughs> right. And I would say in our workshops, we really try, first of all, we only train in multiracial teams. That's intentional because there are some things that we want white people to say to other white people because we know it's going to land in a different way. Yeah,
1: like you have Let's to be, be strategic. mindful. Let's like, just yeah. be strategic
0: about that. And that really good facilitators versus, you know, or trainers really do understand how to relate to the people in the room and then that's why we actually do an assessment so we don't walk in right with cold this, and just exactly right. one size, size fits exactly because right. one, one size does not fit all. Right. absolutely right yes i saw another hand somewhere over here yes go ahead uh where do you think um the changing of how we teach our children history comes in here because i am a parent
1: of young children and i've looking at these books that are behind you, and we have read a number of these because I'm intentionally diversifying my children's bookshelves. Yes. I think it's a big part of it. Mm-hmm, um, absolutely. I, I think our education educational system has done more damage by not teaching people the reality of race in this country. And then people, there's just this disconnect between where we are now and the history as if they're not connected, as, as if... Yeah the ideology and the ways in which we think of people is not rooted in our education system and it is you you can't pull them apart and you know between film and and television and the the educational system i mean everything that i learned about african-american history i was fortunate to learn at home because my father made sure that we knew the history of African Americans in this country, that I didn't feel like I was some one-off, less-than person, some accident, some problem, which is what you would think if you only had most of our schools. Um, You don't learn about the contributions most other people made. You, You think that science was somehow the invention of Europe, and you don't know the contributions that were made by people around the world. The human experiment implicates all of us. But we have a system that has taught all of us that there is a hierarchy of intelligence, of ability, of status, of... And for many people, that's real. They believe it. They really, really believe it. And unfortunately, many of our kids believe it. Mm -hmm. And that's the most tragic part of all. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have... Um, some kind of intervention, uh, starting in kindergarten or preschool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, here's the problem. Where are people learning it? It's like we have to, it's almost like you have to just start all over with the curricula in, in most schools and talk about a fight. Ooh, mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because people see it as something other than an intellectual exercise, to challenge all of these preconceived notions that were mostly based on propaganda about who people are. Mm -hmm. But they don't see it as that. They see it as like the truth, because this is what the scientists have said from Harvard and from Princeton. You know, my last book was about a young African who was exhibited in the Bronx Zoo Monkey House in 1906, and how this was supported by all of the top scientists in New York, the mayor, the New York Times wrote editorial supporting this, because that's the understanding that most white people had of an African person. We can learn from him being in the zoo. What's the problem? He's barbaric. He, mm-hmm. he was a sweet little somebody's child who was in the zoo with an orangutan. Where do those ideas come from? Mm-hmm. They come from textbooks, they come from film, they come from literature, they come from, it's in the air we breathe. And not to disrupt that is like putting lipstick on a pig. We're gonna have diversity initiatives. Right, right. How and are we're you doing all this damage with a, a diversity training session? And what Pamela you teaching that time?
0: Pamela, we're not born knowing that. We're not born with that information. Precisely. We're taught that. You know, we're not born knowing the difference between white or black or straight or gay. Those are things that we're taught. And in, taught. In Illinois, we've just passed an LGBT curriculum bill that is now law. And right. so that will be part of it as well. I think sometimes people are worried that when we go in and talk about race, we're not going to talk about any other systems of oppression. Right. Um, but we start with race because that is still the number one indicator of success in this country. Right. You had your hand up. It's
3: about um,
1: whether or not in your experiences and research and the breakdown of the industries you would generalize differences between
2: urban and rural America.
1: In what way? What do you mean? I'm just wondering if you're noticing um, when you talk about um, white America and the stagnation, has there been perhaps some change or difference or progress in urban areas versus rural areas? Well, I guess just by virtue of the professions that I'm writing about, I would say most are in urban areas. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'm talking about the most progressive realms of American life. I'm not talking about, you know, people who live in Appalachia. I'm talking about New York City, you know, I go to many events, you know, I'm a professor, I'm an author, I, I'm in these worlds, right? Publishing, journalism. I've been in so many rooms, even recently, where I'm the only mm-hmm. African American. It mm-hmm. could be a hundred people. Mm-hmm. And the only other black people will be the ones holding trees. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just normalized. I don't think, and, this, and these are the progressive people. Right. So that's why I want. I guess I to answer your question more clearly, I wanted to focus on the more progressive um, populations because they think they're over this, they're beyond this, they don't need to hear mm-hmm. this, but I'm talking to them because I know them best because they invite me to these things and I'm it. Mm-hmm. And they think it's okay, I'm the diversity it's not okay. And it's not okay because I need friends. It's not okay because I know other black people who just need to be friends with white people. It's not okay because this means that we're going to continue this cycle of exclusion. We're going to continue to maintain these, these homogenous spheres of influence in this country, because it's, it's a natural progression of your friendship circle, the people you have dinner with, the people you play golf with, the people who you go to a book party with, the people that's who's gonna get the job. That's who you're gonna recommend. And you're not gonna know people who look like me because you don't, there's no contact. There's no, you know, every time I have served on a search committee at NYU uh, because they somehow can never find people of color in New York City. Never understood that. Um, I find them, and it, it's not hard. We're journalists. <laughs> That's, we're trained to look for things, and yet journalists can't find journalists of color. This is at I've been at the four news organizations. I was the only African-American in three, and one was in Washington, D.C., What do you mean you can't find any? Like, what is that? Mm -hmm. That's insane. So I think, you know, this maintenance of this, um, I don't know. It—it You know, part of it is just natural, right? People gravitate to what they know, what they feel comfortable with. But because it's having an effect on the whole issue of justice and equality, it kind of matters that we interrogate how this is continuing right because okay if you don't want to have friends that don't look like you that's fine but you need to at least expand your 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 rolodex you need to figure out what are the professional organizations of color where you may be able to find a journalist of color where the you know where might I where, where are the 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 you know the institutions where they may gravitate where they have the training where I could Tap into something that expands my own, you know, little field that's very small. We're talking about fields that like the small elite status that they have. It's elite. And what does elite look like to many people? How do they imagine that to appear? And so all of that gets back to cultural fit, Mm -hmm. you know. And, And I'm sure that, you know that I have had an easier time because to some people, I'm a cultural fit because of appearance. And that's a very difficult thing for me to even admit because that does, you know, it's like you look acceptable. Right,
0: that's right. right.
1: Are both of your parents black? Do you have Mm -hmm. a white parent? Like, no.
0: Colorism colorism. Right. Absolutely, it's right. alive. Yeah, I wanted to get this woman's question in. Yes. Oh.
1: This is yeah. Michelle Duster who is the great-granddaughter of my idol, Ida B. Wells. Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> wow. My goodness. Great yes. to have you here. Yes,
3: mm-hmm. so, I, I had two questions. One is um, what effect do you think Uh, that having this sort of exceptional black person um, be used as excuses for the idea that we're over race. I mean, and I know we have all probably experienced that. Like, what do you mean there's racism? Look at Oprah. (laughs)
1: look
3: her entire Woods, in Obama? What else do you all need? Uh That sort of attitude? Yeah. I mean, I, in some ways, it almost feels a little damaging because then it's like, well, they made it. Especially Oprah's story. I mean, she was poor and this and that, and she made. But I, it but I, work.
1: but I think the one question. Mm-hmm. yeah
3: the exceptional Negro mm-hmm. as the excuse of what is wrong with the rest of you people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've been around in the workforce for a while. And I have seen so many different situations where these companies, almost the
1: only black people they have, work in equity. Yes. Oh, well, they yes. are the they and they're carrying that the diversity, load. Exactly. especially so, in the senior executive mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. level. So yeah. That
3: is mm-hmm. used as a, what else do you people want? Mm-hmm. Attitude right mm-hmm. because we have four black people working here so i mean i'm just saying you know we all i think i don't even need to explain to you but i mean yes. it's just this almost like well kind of right
1: well
2: you made,
3: what,
1: it, so right, you made it so what's and the problem and i made it because people? i had i had the opportunity and i know i stand on great shoulders i know ida b wells didn't have the opportunities i have And I have opportunities because of Ida B. Wells, because she fought that fight. And I know many of us were standing on these shoulders of people who couldn't go through those doors, right? And so those of us who managed to get through the doors have to—remember, we have to keep prying it open further for other people to get through the door and not just, like, roll up the ladder because we're there, right? Um, So that responsibility falls on those to whom have had that opportunity because Pamela Newkirk is fine. I'm a full professor. I've paid my dues. I, I did all those things, but I still see the injustice. I see the inequities. I see the disparities and just, you know, opportunity. So that's my answer. I just think people who who have been fortunate enough to be there can't look at it it's like i'm there because i'm I, i'm the greatest thing that ever lived and if only people did what i did well many people are not going to get there because you're there <laughs> you,
3: you're, you're i'm talking more about the attitude of the company culture. Mm-hmm. oh no well we mm-hmm. know it
1: the symbolic different. diversity yeah
3: right. so that's like well what else do you people want
1: well because we, we well
3: black people here so e- what else do you people want what well
1: people i want? But I think it's the numbers. I know when you have forty percent of the population of color holding two, three, four percent of positions in society, we need to look at like what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's all.
0: We have time for one more question, and then we're going to have to close. Anyone have a burning question? Okay, I'm going to go in the back there. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: so I am proud to say that I'm one of the aforementioned change agents, um, both for my work in corporate America. And then for a national sports organization. This Wonderful. Fairly recent. And I heard your interview on NPR. Got the book yesterday. The cashier Aww. told me you're going
1: to be here today. oh! thank sure. you. But mm-hmm. um,
3: well, my question for you is, um, assuming that you have top-down support as a change agent, in your studies of cross industry organizations, what makes change agents most successful?
1: Well, that having that top-down support, Mm -hmm. actual resources to be able to be successful. One of the things that I found was that um, there was a study that came out, in fact, this year, that um, they they surveyed diversity professionals at, like, the S&P 500, and they found that most said they didn't have the resources or support to be effective in their job, and only 35% 35% had access to the metrics that could even allow them to see where the problems are. So if you don't even have baseline metrics to look mm-hmm. at, there is no way you can be effective in your job because then you, you can't do the assessment and so you can't do the intervention. So, yeah, I, I would say having that that kind of access, transparency, and 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 a person that you're the chief person allowing you then to do what you need to do to disrupt those cycles of inequity yeah I was going to read
0: this uh, last section here because I think it's a great way to end. Um, In the end, racial diversity will not be ushered in by pledges, slogans, or well-compensated czars. While lawsuits will at times stymie progress or exact a price on the most egregious transgressors, racial diversity will only be achieved once white America is weaned off a prevailing narrative of racial preeminence, a belief system as intoxicating and addictive and ultimately destructive as any opiate. The seeds of this corrosive ideology are planted early, and a paradigm shift will require courageous leadership in every sphere, from elementary school principals to university presidents, and from parents, media, and art makers to corporate CEOs. Without truth, there cannot be justice, and the insidious vapor of bigotry will continue to pervade our monochromatic workplaces and our schools, and infect public discourse too often laced with hate. Yes, change will require resources and resolve, but no amount of money, no degree of effort will succeed alongside a willful negation of our shared humanity. In the end, Americans will rise together or submit to division and defeat. Either way, a force greater than all of us is hurling us into a future in which we will arrive broken or intact, in conflict or in peace, battle bruised or unblemished, limping or strutting, but Americans will all be variously arrayed in our multicolored, mini splendored glory. Thank you very much, Pamela. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public, and at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.